we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So I mentioned to you guys at the beginning of the series that the book of 1 Corinthians is, a, is different than any other letter in the New Testament because it's Paul writing a letter kind of rebuking and disciplining this church because this church is just church gone wild. And the reason why is because Corinth is located in this perfect place between the east and the west. It's a little peninsula. It's about a mile-long peninsula on this, on, on, in this stretch of land. And sailors would have to take three days to sail around Greece to get to um, the, the east. But what Corinth did was they dug a trench on that mile a peninsula, and they had slaves drag boats across that mile peninsula. And while the sailors and the merchants were having their boats valeted to the other side of the peninsula, they saved three days of traveling in you know dangerous sailing. And because of those three days, they would just stay at Corinth, get a hotel, go play the slots. And they had this mantra that sounded very much like our mantra in Vegas, which is what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. I mean, that's what people did in Corinth. They just, they partied. And so Corinth was known as the, the city that had the most entertainment, the most, the most theaters, the most pubs, <laughs> the most restaurants. And they had a particular religion that had temple prostitutes in which people could sleep with these prostitutes as part of their worship. And um, in the midst of this den of iniquity, Paul plants a church and says, you know, these people need Jesus and he plants a church there, and within a few years, just a few years, the church has already gone awry. It's like, what are you doing? How could you be living this way? You've been called out as God's chosen people, and you're living in sin. Now, so today we're going to start looking at the sin, and it gets bad. It's, today we're going to look at some sexual stuff. So this is a PG-13 sermon, just to let you know. Um, it'll be okay, though. It'll be okay. It'll only be PG-13 for two verses, and then we'll get off of that. Um, and then we're going to look at other things, drunkenness at church, people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, uh, people suing one another in courts, divorcing one another over silly, stupid things. Um, there's charismatic chaos or speaking in tongues and acting crazy, and we've seen that in our country as well. And then there's all kinds of things that we're getting ready to just launch into. And what's going to happen starting today in Chapter 5, it's just going to tick off. Chapter 5, sex. Chapter 6, suing. Chapter 7, I mean, we're just going to have fun from here on out. Or will we? Will it be too close for home? <laughs> I suggest it might. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to warn you about what's going to come, except for just, just jump in and then say I'm sorry afterwards, okay? Let's do that. So let's do it. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, comma, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. That's the, those people whose religion is to sleep with the temple prostitute. <laughs> the kinds of sexual immorality in your church is worse than the kind of sexual immorality you see amongst pagans who sleep with temple prostitutes. And what is it? A man in your church has his father's wife, which means his mother-in-law. <laughs> if you need to do that math, I do. <laughs> mother, oh, mother-in-law. Not his mother, but his mother-in-law. In the Greek, it's clearer it's mother-in-law. This, that term is used in the New Testament and the Old um, to talk about mother-in-laws. So Paul says, it's actually reported. I'm actually hearing news from Corinth that there's someone in your church, a man. He just, it's all he says about him. He's a man who has sexual immorality that's far worse than the pagans. And that word sexual immorality in Greek, you're going to like this, is the word pornea. That's a Greek word, pornea. In fact, 
I think it would be better if every time the Bible uses the word sexual immorality, if they just put the word pornea in there. I think it would get our attention a little bit more, don't you? Because one commentator said sexual immorality is just too tame of a word. Sexual immorality. What is that? Well, everything outside of sex with your wife, <laughs> right? Sexual immorality is everything. What pornea is worse. The one commentator said it would be better if we used the word pornea or if we used the word whoredom, for instance. This is just the worst of the kinds of sexuality that you can think of. Next time you're reading the Bible and you see that word sexual immorality, it probably is the word pornea, and it means awful, really bad sinfulness. And he says, and it's of the worst kind because people, even pagans don't tolerate, and he's not exaggerating. Um, one scholar said this, incest and sexual relationships with a primary or adoptive kin, even if you adopted someone who's not your blood, was regarded as a serious infraction in this culture in Rome. Now, Rome was known for being sexually loose all over the place. I mean, we, you see that in, on TV specials today. <laughs> but even Rome thought that incest was despicable. And if you look in the Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy, the Old Testament, it was so despicable to God that God said if someone is caught in this kind of relationship with his mother or his mother-in-law or his adopted daughter, kill him immediately. You can look it up. It's in Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Don't even let him live a single day. Or her, for that matter, as it says in Leviticus. So the Old Testament, you know, is harsh that way. So let's just be honest. It's... We feel that way too, don't we? No, even today, if you hear about incest, you're thinking, oh, you see it on the news a lot. And my first thought is, what is wrong with people today? Do, do you think that? It's disgusting. So PG-13 part's over. We're done. We're moving on, okay? You can stop squirming in your seats, those of you who are worried about that. We're done. Verse 2. And you are arrogant, Paul says. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So I want you to see that Paul spends how many verses talking about the sin? Yeah, thank you, one. And then in verse two, boom. We're now we're talking about the church's responsibility in dealing with the sin. This is important for me to tell you this. Paul's not beaten. He could spend a lot of time on the sin, right? He could start talking about why this is bad and why this isn't good, but he moves away from the person who's sinning to quickly to the church that says, okay, now what are you doing about it, church? The church exists to help people, does it not? The church exists to love people and to care for people and to bring people into truth. But that church hasn't done anything but let this thing go. Sweep it under the rug, if you will. Maybe not even sweep it under the rug. Maybe even brag about it. So once you see that, he moves quickly from the sin to the church. It's the church's responsibility. He says, you're arrogant. You're so... He spent four chapters talking about how prideful they were and how smart they were and how wise they were and how eloquent they were and how they had every gift that they ever wanted. And now he's saying, you're arrogant because all of that, if that were true, then why are you letting this happen in your church? There have been people wondering why this has even happened, you know, why they haven't stopped it. You ever wonder that? I can tell you why as a pastor, because confrontation is hard. When people are living in outright known sin, how do you talk to them about it? You, you don't. You just talk about them. Am I right? Someone say I'm right. That's what you do. You just talk about them. You don't go talk to them. And so Paul's words to the church in Corinth can be the words to us as well. You're arrogant. You've got someone who's broken in your church, and instead of dealing with it, you're just kind of gossiping about it. You're not doing anything with it. He says, ought you not rather to mourn? And that word mourn is the strong word. It's the, we only see it used in relationship to death. When someone dies, they have mourning parties. You, you know this in the, in the old ancient world. They would mourn for like a week out loud ah, when people died. 
that's a strong term for mourning. Jesus mourned over Jerusalem right before he died, a big, you know, wailing of a sound. Paul's saying, you should be wailing and weeping. And can I ask you a question? Feel free to answer it. This is not a rhetorical one. Why do you think Paul says we should be mourning this? Just simmer on that a little bit. Why do you think, I want it, I want it to sink in. Why should we mourn? I can think of lots of reasons, so there's not one answer. Okay, it's wrong. It's destroying lives. It's not a victimless crime, for sure. It's not just destroying this man's life, but it's destroying the lives all around him. This is awful, and it should be mourned. And not only that, but this person now, who is living in defiant sin, is not walking with God. I mean, when you live in sin, you know this to be true. When you live in sin, you're running from God. Am I right? And you ignore him. You're like, no, God, I'll talk to you later after I have my fun. I, I do that, okay? God, I know that what I'm about to do is wrong, but I'm not going to talk to you for a couple of weeks because I don't want you to bring it up. <laughs> Am I right? That's, what, that's, what, that's the way we don't say those out loud, but we think that way, don't we? So this guy's broken his fellowship with God. Paul says, I wish that you would remove him among you. So I, I, I need to tell you that we're going to talk about this thing called church discipline. Uh-oh. Because that's what he says. I want you to remove him from among you. Let's see what it looks like. Verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present, excuse me, in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. He can't even name it anymore. So I don't know if you noticed it, but uh-oh. Paul used the J word. Judgment. Where's one of those, someone have one of those, I think we have this little flyer that says out, we're, we're, do you want to go to, you know, we're a church that doesn't judge. I wrote that. <laughs> Isn't it one of those little flyers? Did anyone agree with me? Did, do we have that on something? We do, yeah. Or, or if you want to go to a non-judgmental church or something like that. And we are that, aren't we? I mean, we want to be. Because we all have had bad experiences where we've been in churches that have been judgmental. And so we don't want to be a judgmental church. So do you know the number one verse that non-Christians know and quote? What's the number one verse that non-Christians quote? They know that verse. I mean, they even use Old English, right? Judge not, lest you be judged. It's like, when else does non-Christians use no, the Old English? The Shakespeare play, maybe. <laughs> judge not, lest you be judged. It's like, wow, you know that verse. Why do they, why do they say that? <laughs> because they don't want to be judged. <laughs> Interestingly enough, they don't know that verse. Because that's a very short part of a long verse that Jesus, actually it was Jesus who said that. Let me share it with you. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. That's getting around the English, okay? <laughs> Lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. So when you judge someone else, God's gonna, you got four fingers pointing right back at you, right? And with that measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, hey, let me remove the speck out of your eye, when there is a stinking log in your own eye, you hypocrite? It's true, isn't it? So Jesus is saying, don't judge because you have no right to judge because you're a hypocrite. But I want you to hear what he goes on to say. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, Jesus does never, he, he, he's, he's swift. You know, Jesus is swift. He doesn't give us an opportunity to say, hey, it's all good, man. Don't judge me, I won't judge you. All right, we're all good. Because Jesus says, no, 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 sin is bad. I hate sin. We, we need to be, in a sense, judging sin. But before you can judge sin, you've got to remove it from your own life. So he doesn't say, it's no, no judging. He just says, Judge after you've rightly judged yourself. 
and you know this to be true, there is times in which we have to judge. So the, the church, let me say it this way, the church judges, but it's not judgmental. Do you know the difference? Judgmental is when we look down our nose at people like we're better than them and they need to fix their life. Judging is like, that's wrong. That's the difference. The truth of the matter is, is that we can't look down our nose at other people because we've got to, I was, I was Googling images for this. Like I wanted to put an image on the screen that would just like sink it into your brain. You're like, yes, that's totally me. But I couldn't find anything. But what I did find was a bunch of little quotes, you know, those little Facebook quotes or whatever. And it said like, don't judge me because my sin is different than yours. <laughs> that's like the new, that, there's so many of those out there. It's like, that's the new thing everyone's saying. Well, that's true. As a Christian, I want to say, I'm not going to judge you because you're right. I have different, I struggle with different things than you do. But it's not the complete truth. The complete truth is, but what you're doing is still wrong. <laughs> Even Just because what I'm doing is wrong doesn't mean, doesn't mean that I can't say that what you're doing is wrong. Does that make sense? There's still truth, and there's still wrong, and there's still righteousness, and Christ died for a purpose for us. And the church exists to save people and to transform lives and to help people. And if we ignore the, the wrong because we don't want to be judgmental, then we're worse off, right? Does that make sense? So now we've got to talk about church Discipline. That's why Paul says, kick him out of the church. So let me say something about church discipline. First of all, I don't like the word discipline. Who does? <laughs> Who likes? I don't like it for two reasons. One is I don't like to discipline kids. I don't like to discipline my kids. I don't like, if I was an employer, I wouldn't want to discipline my employees. The other reason why I don't like it is because I don't have any discipline. <laughs> so I just don't like the word discipline. It's a D word, Okay. But the truth of the matter is, is that church discipline, so named, exists because the church does have to discipline its people because the church's responsibility is for its flock. Jesus is the chief shepherd, and the elder board and the leadership of the church are the under-shepherds, and the Bible commands them, your responsibility is your flock. You have to tend to your flock. And if you don't, it would be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and thrown into the bottom of the sea. And so we have a responsibility for our flock. And so when we see our flock running away, a shepherd goes and gets them and sometimes breaks their legs so they'll learn their lesson not to run away. That's what the Bible teaches. So that's what discipline is. But unfortunately, unfortunately, there are two sides to, the, to discipline. The first side is the church in America hasn't been doing it correctly for years because it can't. Because if I were to say, look, you have sin in your life, then you'll say, well, let's go somewhere else. And then so there's no correction of the sin. And then the second side of discipline is there's a receiver. And unfortunately, since I started church planting three years ago, I will tell you this, that probably 90% of all the people who've come through our church, I've always contacted them and said, would you like to get coffee? We'll sit down and have coffee. And I said, tell me your story. How did you hear about our church? Where did you come from? What church did you go to before that? I would say about 89% of them or 90% of them have an awful, an awful story of, well, we were at this church and, that, and they called us in and said we couldn't come to the church anymore because my wife has a tattoo on her ankle. And I'm, that's a real story, by the way. Actually, the story is she couldn't sing in, she couldn't sing in the band because she had a tattoo on her ankle. I've heard so many stories where people say things like that and they have been burned by quote-unquote discipline. And I want you to see that this discipline is about incest, not a tattoo. This discipline is about sexual immorality, not, you know, 
appearance or you were mean to your kids or you're mean or you're going through a divorce or you're struggling with alcoholism these are things that we struggle with and you don't get kicked out because of it but this is incest this is a different kind of you see the difference so so we'll talk about discipline very carefully very cautiously because I, see, I know a lot of people have been hurt and the church has made a lot of mistakes so let's look at what Jesus says about discipline I mean <laughs> Jesus makes discipline if, if discipline wasn't hard enough um, Jesus made it harder look Matthew 18 Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, who sins against you? Brother. So not your neighbor, your coworker. You know what I mean? This is, this is your Christian brother, someone who you have a, a bond with. Go and tell him his fault. Oh, I have to, I have to preach a little bit here. I have, I have to get on a soapbox. Can I? Just for one minute? Okay. Um, go and tell him his fault. That means go and talk to him face to face. It does not mean send him a text. It does not mean send him an email. It does not mean rant about him in, in, in you know, secret terms on Facebook. Can I just say that? You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes when people have a problem with someone, they don't have the courage to go to their face and say, I've got a problem with you. What they do is they text him or they're rude to them or they email the whole problem, like give you five pages, thank you very much, or they say something that's you without your name on it on Facebook. I'm sick of it. It's ridiculous, okay? Be a man. Go to him and say, you've got a problem. Two reasons. A, the first reason is that's cowardly, and Jesus says, go. <laughs> I got a Bible verse, okay? And secondly is you can't confront someone on Facebook or texting or email because you can't see tears and you can't feel love in those venues. Does that make sense? If you're going to confront someone, it's got to be with your arms around them. That's the truth. You've got to confront them out of love, not out of self-defense. Okay, I'm done. If he listens to you, you go between you and him alone. That means don't get people on your team, don't gossip, just you and him alone. If he listens to you, this is what Jesus says, you have gained your brother. You see that the, 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 the principle here is love. You've won your brother. Your brother's no longer lost out there living in sin, far from God, separated from God, but you've brought him back into the fold, and now your brother's again, not separated. You see that? But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. And again, I think this is two others who love him, that every charge may be established by the evidence of other witnesses, two or three witnesses. If he still refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And this doesn't mean gossip. This doesn't mean telling everybody in the church. <laughs> this doesn't mean the pastor get up and say, well, Rick was sleeping with his brother's uncle's wife. You know what I mean? We don't do that. What it means is take it to the leadership of the church, the elders, if he still refuses to listen, then let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, or no, which is pretty bad. In other words, non-Christian. Treat him like a non-Christian. So I don't know if you noticed this or not, but Jesus made it really difficult. He gave us three, maybe even four steps. First step, go in private. Second step, take two other people with you out of love. Third step, take it to the church because the church exists to correct this kind of awful sin. And if it still doesn't work, then discipline. Discipline is the fourth step. Let's just be honest. For most of us, it's one and done. Am I right? So see, Jesus and the church's responsibility for discipline is supposed to be a four-step process that's very painful and takes a lot of time and a lot of prayer and a lot of tears. It's not, okay, here's my problem. Will you say you're sorry? No. One and done. I gave you a chance. Done. We're done. I'm done with you. So you see, discipline is really hard, which is why we don't do it, because it takes time. And you can't do it unless you love them. All right, so Paul goes on. I, I should move on, shouldn't I? 
Um, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man, uh-oh, it's getting even worse, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that, and here's the key, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So this is a person who, I believe, has gone through those four steps already, and they're bold-faced saying, we're arrogantly, there ain't nothing wrong with what I'm doing. We're in love. I'm just, I'm trying to put myself in the man's shoes. <laughs> and Paul's saying, okay then, you've got to kick him out. He cannot fellowship with the church anymore. You've, he has got to go. And matter of fact, we should just tell him, you're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian if you were looking at me boldface and saying, this is not a sin. Now, if the man said, I'm struggling with this, I'm, I, I've been, I need your help, that's a different ballgame altogether. Does that make sense? I've been in churches before. We've had to deal with alcoholism. We had to deal with um, infidelity. Um, do you think that's hard? Yeah. You probably have dealt with it yourself, some of you. It's hard. It takes time. It takes love. It takes patience. It takes prayer. It takes walking side by side. You don't just say, it's not just mental. Do you agree that this is wrong? Yes, I agree that it's wrong, but I can't stop doing it. Okay, so as long as you agree that it's wrong, we're not kicking you out. We have no reason to kick you out. We're not going to kick you out. You need the church more than, it, more than ever. <laughs> so, so I want to make sure that when we talk about discipline, we're not talking about just getting people out because they're not looking the part or being you know, perfect. We're talking about people who are hostile towards the gospel, hostile towards the, the God. They're running from God is what they're doing. So Paul says, deliver them to Satan. Um, sometimes God can't get their attention, but Satan can. <laughs> Here's a good illustration. The prodigal son's father couldn't talk him out of doing what he was about to do, which is take his family's inheritance, run to Las Vegas, and spend it all on gambling and women. But the pigs taught him a pretty good lesson, didn't they? He's sitting in the pig pen. Huh. I think I messed up. So some, and isn't this true with parenting? I know we've got kids in the room, so I don't want to give away your secrets, but, it's, but they know it. Isn't it true? Sometimes, like, I told you once, I told you twice, I told you a thousand times. I'm just going to let you do it. Fine, go. And then we say this, don't come crying to me when I told you so. But we want them to come crying to us, right? We want them to come crying and say, okay, mom, you were right. That's what we do. We deliver them over to the world, to their own device, to Satan, in a sense. Do it fine. You want to listen to me, then do it. You'll see. You'll see that I'm only telling you this because I love you. And that's what Paul's saying to this guy. But the, I want you to see that the key is so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We're not just kicking him out because we don't like him. We're kicking him out because it's the only choice we have, and we hope that it saves him. We hope that he'll come back. At some point, the church needs to say, we love you, we love you, we love you. Can we please help you with this? We know it's there. You know, you, you, if you don't know, we know. Now you know that we know. <laughs> so can we work through this together? And, and, and you know what? Sitting in this chair, you may think out loud, you may agree with me, what a wonderful place this would be if that could happen in a healthy fashion, wouldn't it? If you really could have love and community and then gentle, patient correction like you do with your children and then staying power, I'm not going to leave, we're going to stay and work through this together, and then we would be holy and we would be, we would be purified and we would be tight and we'd be powerful. We really would be. This is why our mission statement is Christ, community, culture. Of course, Christ, it's all about Christ, but community. We have to build uncommon, unnatural, <laughs> difficult community in order to pull this off. People don't care how much you know 
until they know how much you care. You may know you're not supposed to get drunk every Tuesday night. They may know that, but they don't care if you say that unless they know that you really care about them. They, they, they trust you because they know you love them. And then you can say, hey, I got a problem I want to talk to you about. And you know I love you, so this is hard for me. We have to have community. Not only that, but you also have to have community because if you don't have community, then you almost don't really know everyone's real problems. You just see the out. Honestly speaking, if someone's got some um, public sin out there, that's not the real problem. I don't know if you know that or not, but it's not. There's a, there's a deeper problem that needs to be dealt with. They're just getting drunk or they're just living this way or they're just angry all the time because there's a real problem that they're not sharing. And if they were in a real community, they almost wouldn't even have to share it. You would just pick it up. I eat dinner with you every Thursday night. I see you every Wednesday for women's coffee. After a couple of months, six, eight months, I kind of can just sense there's something brewing inside of you. You can't do it without community. That's why we're doing it with community. Now, I'm going to just cut it off. My, I'm going to cut my sermon in half, unless you want me to keep going with the other half. <laughs> Probably not. Okay. <laughs> we're just going to stop it here. But I, but I have to bring us to Christ as we worship. Um, Paul says this, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You know what leaven is. It's yeast. It, 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 it rises the whole lump. So clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So yeast is, is in the Bible, always used as an illustration or a metaphor for sin because sin is just like yeast. Yeast is practically invisible. And you've held it in your hands. It's like these little bitty beads. You lose a bead, you know. It's so invisible. And then when it gets into the bread, once you knead it into the dough, can you pick it back out? He's like, oh, there's the yeast, there's the yeast. No, it's all, and once it's in there, it's invisible. And what does it do? It puffs up the bread. It pushes it up. And so sin is that way. You don't necessarily see it, right? It would take a surgeon, a psychological, spiritual, I don't know, guru to be able to say, here's your sin, here's your sin, here's your sin. It's all over you. It's all inside of you. And once it gets in there, it kind of puffs you up and makes you arrogant and proud and, and evil. Paul's saying the church is unleavened. Sin has been removed by Christ's blood. Here he goes. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, celebrate communion, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with a new leaven of unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And that word sincerity is literally the word singleness, singleness and truth. We are one bread, one loaf, one family, taking part in one bread of Christ, one cup of Christ one communion with Christ. We are one. We have to have singularity and sincerity. Jesus died for us so that our sin can be paid for. So remove any sin that's in your midst so that you can be one together. That brother who's sinning, if, 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 if he can't stop sinning, then get him out so you can be one. I, I really do hate giving you the first half without the second half because the second half is loving sinners. So the first half is hating sin. We've, we've beat that horse dead, I think. <laughs> the next half is, but loving sinners. Because Paul immediately corrects himself. He says, now, I told you to separate from sin, but by that I don't mean outsiders. If you were to separate yourself from all sin, then you'd have to separate from the world. So, so Paul's saying, I'm not telling you to separate from the world. I'm telling you to separate from one person who refuses to get his sin correctly. 
This is important to Paul and it's important to me so that we remember that it's not about sin necessarily. It's about the person. Yes, we don't want the sin in here, but we need to love sinners. When you kick someone out of the church, they're not a they're Christian anymore. You still love them as a, as a sinner. Does that make sense? Hate sin. We don't want it in here, but we love sinners. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus died for sinners. You're a sinner. Father, we... Uh, we are, we are so thankful that you love us and that you love us despite the fact that we're full of sin. We really are, and we admit that.